Turn in your copies of God's Word to the book of Haggai. Haggai, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. A small book, but not insignificant. And as you're turning there, let me set the context for us. This is post-exilic, meaning this is after the exile, the Babylonian captivity. And the people were in bondage. They were in captivity for 70 years. And the scripture tells us in 2 Chronicles that the reason that they were in captivity for 70 years is that they had abandoned the covenant of God. They had despised His laws. They had forsaken His ways. They had become prosperous. And instead of worshiping the Creator, they were worshiping the Created. God who had given them this land, who had driven out their enemies, And now they're prospering, and they're like, we don't need God. And God, in His love and grace, comes to them, messenger after messenger. And you know the story, how they despised His messengers. They mocked mocked the messengers. They killed the messengers. And so God, in His great love, and maybe we miss that, but the captivity of His people was because of His great grace and love. A father disciplines those whom he loves. And so God is calling them now after 70 years out of captivity. And he uses a pagan king, Cyrus the Persian, to release them from captivity. And what's fascinating is the reason for their release is worship. The reason for their release is to rebuild the temple of the holy God. Let me read this from 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Isn't this amazing? God's using this pagan king to restore his temple in Jerusalem. And so the people begin this good work. And We'd like to say, and they lived happily ever after. But we have the the prophet Haggai, who comes because the people have neglected the the temple of God. They started strong, but they stopped. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. So God raises up this prophet Haggai to encourage the people to rebuild his house, to make worship central again. I want us to look at Chapter 1 here of Haggai this morning under two headings. And the message is, consider your ways. That's the message of the prophet. We're going to look at this under two headings. The first is, pardon me. The first is the way of want. Consider your ways. Number one, the way of want. Number two, consider your ways, the way of 
of worship. So let's read together now from Haggai chapter 1. And please give attention now as we read God's holy word. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, excuse me, verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray now for the illumination of your word by your spirit, and we are reliant upon your spirit, the spirit who bears witness with our spirit, the spirit who intercedes on our behalf, who makes groanings too deep for words. We know that spiritual things, Father, are spiritually discerned. And so we need your help this morning to see wonderful things from your law. Give me strength and power to proclaim the word of Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, the text is rich with details. Haggai the prophet gives us the who, the what, the when, and the where. And it's significant that we have all three offices here, the prophet, priest, and king. These are to the leadership of Judah. It's also interesting how we have the dates that bracket this section in chapter 1, which we're looking at Haggai chapter 1 this morning. Next week we'll look at Haggai chapter 2, and we'll draw out the significance of this specificity. Why are these dates so important? Well, the the when gives us the second year of Darius the king. This is important because Darius is the successor to Cyrus. God's plan and his will is being accomplished. It is being carried out by the offspring of Cyrus. And the what? What are we looking at this morning? It's this message, consider your ways. And so the message begins in verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is authoritative. Thus says the Lord of hosts. The Lord here in your Bibles is in all caps. That is the creator God, Yahweh, that was not even pronounced in the Old Covenant. They would not even dare write the vowel pointings on this most holy name. And then it's combined with the Lord of hosts. Not only is the Lord the the sovereign ruler of all heaven, but he's also sovereign ruler of all the earth. And maybe in your mind you're thinking about Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has this vision from God and these angels that are before the throne, and they don't cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. This is the Lord God, the creator God, the Lord, the sovereign Lord coming to his people. I love this quote by Herman Bavink. And he called the Lord of hosts, and this is a quote from him, the king in the fullness of his glory, who, surrounded by regimented host of angels, governs the whole world as the Almighty, and in his temple receives the honor and acclamation of all his creatures. This is the Lord of hosts, the God who is to be worshipped, as we sang today, from Psalm 2, the nations are to bow and to kiss the Son. But as a church, as a covenant people, we too are to bow and to give reverence to God. It's, it's interesting. It's almost like we're getting a little window into this inter-Trinitarian dialogue. So it's like this conversation within the Trinity. Notice the message. Verse 1 ends with a colon. And then we have recorded for us, thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say, these people, interesting, not a personal pronoun, but yet it's a demonstrative, demonstrative, it's impersonal, it's pointing to something. And there's a subtext going on here. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They know by command, the Lord's command, that they are to rebuild the temple, but yet they're they're waiting. They're delaying. We don't know if that's political. We don't know if that's economic. 
But we do know that the temple has come to a halt. And this is when the word of the Lord comes through Haggai. And they are pursuing the way of want. They're looking to their own needs, their own pleasures. In fact, how do we escape this in verses 3 and 4? Where Haggai continues this message. Look at verses 3. Or verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Well, the Lord, and the Lord has a sense of humor, is picking up on this theme. Is it time? The people are asking themselves. And the Lord responds, is it a time for you to live lavishly, notice the, the language here, dwelling in your paneled houses. Well, the temple of the Lord that was constructed by Solomon was built with the cedars of Lebanon. It had paneling throughout. And yet the people here were focused on their own pleasure, their own desires. They were neglecting the worship of God. They were neglecting his temple. But yet, boy, they were living they were living in palaces themselves. They're living in luxury. And the word of the Lord comes to them. Consider your ways. We might modernize this. And I could quote from the theologian, Dr. Phil. How's that working out for you? Look at the definition of, of futility in verse 6. You work hard, but you have little or nothing to show for it. You eat and drink, but you're never satisfied. You have clothes, you're never warm. And I love this. Your wealth is being drained away. This picture, and maybe this is a picture of our IRAs in the stock market, but you're earning wealth, you're pursuing wealth, but you're putting your money in a hole that has, or in a bag that has holes in it. The definition of futility. How's that working out for you? And you would think, after 70 years, and aren't we so quick to judge? I look at the disciples and I'm like, what is their problem? Why, what, what don't they see? The Lord Jesus is right in front of them. We do the same thing with the Israelites, don't we? After 70 years in exile, they go right back to focusing on themselves, their own glory, and they are forsaking the Lord. But... Right? That the Lord Jesus has not given up on his people. We have such a gracious God who continues to pursue us, who continues to come after us. And that's what he does. He doesn't leave them alone. After all this time, and I, as a father, I'm so frustrated. How many times do I have to tell you? But the Lord lovingly, graciously calls us as his children, come back to me, come back to me. And that's what he does in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Well, what's the final message? He tells them, go up. Go into the hills, bring wood, build my house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified. 
the Lord Jesus will be glorified. And even if we were not to speak, you think about the triumphal entry and the Pharisees rebuking Jesus. Tell your disciples to stop calling you the Messiah. Tell your disciples to stop calling you the Son of God. And what does Jesus say? Even if they were to stop, the rocks would cry out. Our God is deserving of all of our worship. He will be glorified. The message here is to forsake your own way. This way of want, that is the way of wanting. You pursue your own way, this way of want, seeking your own desires, you will find it wanting. And I'm grateful for that because the Lord will not allow you to continue in sin. If you are one of his children, he will bring you back. What a comfort that is because we all stray. We all have besetting sins. But as this loving father comes alongside and loves us enough to discipline us and to say, you need correction. Well, that's the way of want. Let's now look at the way of worship. Read verse 12 with me. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Notice that last sentence. And the people feared the Lord. We look at this. Well, externally they're obeying. What's going on in their hearts? And it's almost as if this sentence is an afterthought. But I want us to look at the significance of this concept. And we ask ourselves the question, what is fear? What does Haggai mean here? What is the biblical definition? Well, let's, let's start with what it's not. It's not a fear of retribution or judgment. It's not, I'm afraid. This fear is just the opposite. Let me read to you from the words of Moses from Exodus 20. And, and this relates to the new covenant. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, I want you to listen and hear this. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. This contrast between being afraid of God and fearing God. Those who have a proper fear of God will not be afraid of Him. One commentator writes that the right fear of God is quite explicitly a blessing of the new covenant. Interesting. Maybe a little counterintuitive. counterintuitive. Let me read that again. The right fear of God is quite explicitly a blessing of the new covenant. Let me read from Jeremiah 33. Because I can say it. We can read a commentator. But let's look to the Word of God and be good Bereans. This is Jeremiah 33, verses 8 and 9. The Lord promises, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. 
and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I will do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Listen to what he's saying. There's, there's no fear of punishment here. It's just the opposite. His benefits are pure blessing. He promises to cleanse them from guilt, to forgive them, and to do great good for them. This is the reverent awe. This is the worship that wells up in our heart when we think about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no fear of God any longer. Why? Because God has put your sin, He's put my sin upon His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what killed the Lord Jesus, was the wrath of God that was poured out upon His Son for your sin and for my sin. He has removed all judgment. Paul writes in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We worship because of the Son of the Lord, Je the, the Son who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how the people respond. They obeyed. They obeyed. Fear, worship. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, you will obey my commandments. Obedience is an act of worship. I love Romans 12:1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice which is your reasonable service, which is your reasonable worship. What's the problem, though, with the living sacrifice? Is it keeps getting off the altar, right? And that's where I'm at. And so we have to keep coming back and reorient ourselves and our focus on the triune God and have Him central in our lives. Well, they got busy. And it's interesting to note that and if you look at the dates between verse 1 and verse 15, they take a little bit longer than maybe three weeks to get started. And you and I, again, would like to judge and say, why didn't you obey instantly? That's what we teach our children, right? Delayed obedience is disobedience. But I want you to put this in context. It took 46 years to build the temple. So they were preparing. They were getting ready. And the text records for us, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. Well, the Lord responds as well. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. God gave His Spirit. He enabled His people. And this is a great comfort for us. He who called you is faithful. He will do it. You can imagine as they're looking at this monumental task. This is impossible. There is no way. Maybe that was part of their incentive or lack thereof of completing the temple. It's too big. And yet the Lord is so gracious. And he says, here I am. I'm giving my spirit to you so that you can obey me. What did the temple symbolize? It symbolized relationship. It symbolized God's presence in their, in their midst. And they must have been thinking about this. 
as they were working. God with us, Emmanuel, who will never leave us or forsake us. Listen to this from Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12. This is the covenant promise that God makes to his people. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Worship is central. That's why you were created. As the first question of the catechism states, we are made for His glory. The question this morning is, are you pursuing the way of want? Are you seeking your own pleasure? Are you you doing what you think is best? Or are you seeking the way of worship? Where are you? Where in your heart is the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you focused on building your own house this morning? You're living in luxury. Maybe we can apply that spiritually, maybe not necessarily physically, but you're neglecting Christ. You're focused on your own desires and your own pleasure. That's the question this morning. Are you pursuing the way of want? Are you pursuing the way of worship? Let's pray. Father, we need to hear this message. So often our hearts are prone to stray from you. We need to be reminded of the centrality of worship, that you are God and that there is no other. And because of your great love and grace and mercy to us, you have made a way of escape. You have given us salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fear that we have for you is reverent awe. We worship you because of the great things that you've done in Christ. Father, help us to contemplate on these things. Help us to be mindful as we're going through throughout the day, the week, the year. Am I busy with the worship of God? Or am I busy with my own self-pleasure, my own desires, and building my own little kingdom? Oh God, help us to prioritize and to centralize your worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.